I think that we are most optimistically on the edge of the emergence of alternative mechanisms for, you know, resilience and sustainability. Hello, welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode, we talk with somebody who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this episode, I enjoyed a wide-ranging conversation with Douglas Rushkoff, who's an author, academic, and documentarian who studies human autonomy in a digital age, and said to be one of the world's 10 most influential academics by MIT. He's also host of the Team Human podcast and author of the best-selling book Team Human and many other books on media, technology and culture. In this conversation, we talked about the need to make choices that build a future that bridges the inherently polarizing nature of our connected world. We also talked about more distributed ways of organizing to be effective and the fact that we are on the edge of nothing less than the end of civilization right now, and what we should do about it. So I started out by asking him why on the back of his Team Human book, there are only three words, namely find the others. Enjoy! And I thought the back of the book is valuable real estate for social propaganda. So if someone's sitting on the tube or the subway reading the book, what the other people will see is find the others. So yeah, my question was, once we found the others, what should we do next? Oh, love them. Play with them. The find the others quote originally came from uh, Timothy Leary after a lecture that he gave in uh, Berkeley. A young woman who just had her first psychedelic experience got up and she asked, what do I do now that I've seen how the world is connected? And Timothy said, find the others. And he meant find the other cool psychedelic people who've had this insight so you can gather with them and you know, build a new world. To me, I wanted to I wanted to take it out a step and make find the others, find the genuine others. You know, someone like me, go find the person wearing the Make America Great Again hat and find the human being in there. Oh, the people unlike you rather than the people like you. Yeah, the others. Find the human being in the others and, and, and see how we're on the same team. We're all on Team Human together and, you know, understand who they are. Well, it's interesting because I, I read that as find the other people that you have kind of solidarity with or something in common with rather than the people that you have sort of overt differences mm-hmm. with because that's kind of what I've been doing for the last 18 months. I'm interested in ways in which we can organize to get stuff done. When I look at the, the protests happening in the States right now, how do we organize to be effective? If we wanted to be effective for the climate longevity of the planet, we would just have way, way, way fewer of us. <laughs> and, you know, by my nature, I'm something of a of an anarcho-syndicalist. Sorry, can you define that for us? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I didn't know what it was until I was giving a talk in Germany. In theory, what they were arguing for was the great majority of business to be done on the level of cottage industry. All these small cottage industries are networked together and trading amongst each other. So between that and the concept of subsidiarity, that nothing needs to grow bigger 
than it should. It's an understanding of business where no business grows larger than it needs to in order to conduct its business. Is that a winding back of globalization to a kind of a, a previous era? Well, it's a winding up of business and value creation and exchange back up to the level that it was at before globalization shut down commerce and business. It's reestablishing the circulatory system of the economy rather than this trickle-down nonsense that we're kind of living in, you know, this, this monopolization of, of exchange. I mean, we're not even allowed to exchange between each other without borrowing money at interest from a central treasury. It's not just taxation at this point. It's the, the whole notion of sending people out into the COVID world to support the economy is not to support the exchange of goods. It's to support bankers who need the economy to grow in order for uh, them to be able to siphon off value from working class people. I feel like the economic foundations of whatever system we're talking about may need to be the fundamental ones. So when I think about what kind of community to build, it's something that's way more local in spirit, where 80 or 85 percent of what the community consumes comes from itself or within you know, a few miles or you know, 50 miles of itself. And then the things like iPhones, you know, maybe those come from far away. What do we do though to organize them? I mean, in terms of creating organizational groups, we take our 80 or 120 people and actually just do the fucking thing, you know, just do it and then model a behavior and an approach and let other people copy or whatever, you know, what works for them from that rather than 80 or 120 people figuring out what everybody should do. Yeah, no, I, well, I totally relate to that. There were two things that I jotted down towards the end of your book. Embracing ambiguity is our superpower. That's how we learn. And the other is the future is less a noun than a verb. It's a thing that we do. Yeah, there's definitely that kind of analysis paralysis that it's easy to slip into to try and figure stuff out, but then you don't actually do anything. You don't learn by doing. And so, yeah. yeah, I mean, the future is a verb thing is more to avoid all this scenario planning that people are doing, that most businesses look at the future as this fixed thing and the best we can do is prepare for it. So we're going to build a bunker because this is going to happen, you know, or we're going to buy guns because that's going to happen rather than saying, oh, look, if we do this now, that bad thing will happen. So let's do this other thing now and make a different thing happen. And people look at that now as if it's magic, as if that's magical, superstitious thinking. The actions you take will change. You can change the future, you know, and it's not magical. It's just, it's so normal, but it's partly because of business and the value of prediction to business. They want to know what's going to happen so they can speculate on it or bet on the most likely outcome and then do everything to fulfill that. If all bets are on apocalypse now, then that's the one we're going to get. Well, yeah. What do you think we're on the edge of right now? Looking around you, do you hold on to hope? Oh, it seems pretty clear we're on the edge of the end of this civilization. And it's heavy, right? The ends of civilizations don't necessarily mean everybody just dies, but transitions are, they're difficult. But yeah, I think we're on the edge of, of something serious. The bigger question is how um, soft a landing can we create? How many resilient alternative structures can we put together to help absorb the, the needs that can't be, that will no longer be met by 
you know, civilization as we know it. So, you know, I look at something like education and I'll realize, okay, if the, you know, the school systems stop working and college stops working and the, because the business model doesn't work and we can't really afford four years of liberal arts development for our entire population anymore. What replaces that? And then I start looking back to retrieving medieval mechanisms, you know, the guilds and apprentices. And I was just talking with a a baker I know in Vermont. She can't find someone who's going to commit to actually learning how to bake the bread with her. We were talking about, could we implement and find some kind of a new internship system where someone comes as an apprentice and works for five years and really learns how this happens, you know, and maybe then they go off and have their own, um, have their own business. So you bring in an intern every year or two, they're getting the, the education, they're getting the knowledge they need to create value for themselves. So I'm looking at that. I think that we are most optimistically on the edge of the emergence of alternative mechanisms for, you know, resilience and sustainability. At worst, we're on the edge of just Mad Max, you know, a collapse of society. But I have a feeling there's enough people who want things to be right, that we will develop something else. Uh, if we don't just go into fascism, you know, we could, we could do something else. Fascism seems, seems pretty imminent, though. When, when you have a leader tear gas peaceful protesters so he can take a photo op in front of a church of himself holding a Bible and talking about cracking down more violently on protesters, that's, um, that's not a good that's moment. scary stuff. Yeah. I, I do want to come on to the kind of current protests and kind of uh, whether we're more or less likely to, you know, see the more optimistic or pessimistic version of that future that you just talked about. But just going back to your baker friend in Vermont is at least part of the reason why she can't find anybody to be an apprentice with her because those sorts of roles are being automated, right? The rise of the machines, you know, taking those jobs. If you invest five years of your life to learn how to bake bread, what peace, what comfort, what security do I have in that craft? I think you do because um, there are certain things that machines can't do. I mean, that's why I always talk about digital as the, you know, the digits, the fingers, the hands. You know, I feel like automation and industrialism is more from the television era. You know, you need television in order to to stoke the appetite for more consumer goods so that you can keep the engines of industrialism going. You know, we have machines so that we can make, you know, 100 lawnmowers an hour where it would take human beings, you know, 10 hours to make just one. And if you're going to have all these lawnmowers, you need television in order to get people to buy lawnmowers because they don't really need them. They could just have one lawnmower on the whole block and we'd be fine. But then that wouldn't keep the factory growing and all those people employed and all those machines, you know, churning out stuff. We get to a digital age and I feel like that does collapse. I mean, right now we're seeing digital technology being used as an extension of television. So, you know, we use it. The Internet is basically Netflix with surveillance apparatus. So it's still about consumption. So what is really going on then? Because I mean, at the moment, there's just so many crises happening in parallel. And I think they're all related, but it's hard to stay on top of everything. I stopped tweeting when the riots started, really, because I felt like it was more respectful to be silent and to give voice to others, rather than to be there as another educated white intellectual tweeting his thoughts. It just seemed like, oh, please. But yesterday, some people were tweeting, 
um, Rushkoff, how dare you stay silent when this is happening? How disrespectful of this moment to think that we're not allowed to sit for a moment, to meditate for a day or two on what to say is odd. I didn't know what to say and stayed silent for a couple of days. But then I did see other people talking about if you're staying silent, then, you know, that's the problem because this is, you know, bad things happen when, you know, people don't shout it out or call it out. And so I've, you know, I've, I've said a few things, but I don't really know what I can add into the mix. No, I honestly think the the best we can do is amplify the voices of those who are not being heard. Is somehow our job not to transcend the noise. So, you know, if we're talking about the end of the current civilization and the softer landing that we hopefully can create, I was reading something interesting today saying the purpose of, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs where self-actualization is right at the top. That's kind of the ultimate, you know, Instagram influencer <laughs> or something quite at a shallow level, you know. Yeah, and Maslow and finally... At the end of his life, you know, it turns out, because I've been criticizing Maslow for 30 years for that. Oh, have you? Okay, yeah. yeah. Self-actualization is the self-help movement, is consumerism, is the me generation. It was ridiculous. It's what led to, to the iPhone over the e-phone. But apparently at the end of his life, he wrote a correction to the hierarchy of needs where he realized that the top should be like service. But of course, that didn't get publicized because putting service at the top doesn't sell more, you know, new age gurus self-help crap. So who or what are you in service of these days, Douglas, would you say? I mean, right now I'm trying to be in service to humanity in order to help humanity rise to the occasion of its stewardship of the planet. We and our civilization touches everything now. And it's like, you break it, you bought it. Our job is to... Uh, help maintain the lower temperature of the planet. That's what life does. Life maintains a, uh, an environment that's capable or suitable for life itself. That's what Gaia has been doing since, since Gaia has been here. It's, we're alive and then, okay, now we got to maintain the climate so that we can stay alive here. I mean, if there were no life on this planet, life could not start on this planet at this point. It's just too hot. So, I mean, Team Human, I'm not saying that purpose of Team Human was to launch an environmental movement, but it's to engender team spirit among people to help human beings come to the understanding and experience of being human as a team sport, as a connected thing, to rehabilitate uh, capacity for rapport. Because without rapport, we cannot realize our collective nervous system. I don't know what your experience of lockdown has been, but there's been something about the, the physical isolation that seems to have prompted more connection. We've been in isolation, you know, since the around 2001, when we decided to, to really make these devices into always on surveillance technology, you know, and, and really to build an Internet that is an addictive, isolating, atomizing thing so that we can control people. We've been in isolation. We've been in a kind of subtle lockdown for the last 10 years. The beauty of this lockdown is it helps us see just how locked down we are. 
it helps us see these tools as even though they're allowing us to talk right now, we understand, oh my gosh, this is a really atomized way of life that's been developed for us by these companies. Sometimes if you if you have an ache of a certain kind or you're doing something like you're holding your jaw too tense, sometimes if you more actively hold it tense, it gives you the ability to let go of it. So you can see, oh, I see, I'm holding my arm in this way. And if you push further, then it allows you to let go. And I feel like that's sort of what could be going on here, that now that we are doubling down on all of these atomizing technologies, we can see, oh, wow, look at this. I really am actively isolating. I'm actively alienated, that it helps us see the role of these platforms. This is really kind of nuts, isn't it? The way that we get so triggered and amplified. And I think a lot of people are willing to say, you know, this doesn't, this actually doesn't look like reality to me anymore, that there's other people and they don't really hate me. And this is not an accurate picture of the world. I don't know if you've read uh, Rutger Bregman's new book, uh, Humankind. He's trying to make the argument that, you know, we're fundamentally good people at heart. But if we fed this cynical narrative, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so, I argued that in Team Human. I know you do. And I read both of your books in parallel, actually. And so uh, there were lots of parallels. Because yeah. it goes back to the prisoner's dilemma experiments that they did. And John Nash at Rand did the, um, did the prisoner's dilemma experiments, and they always failed. They did them with the secretaries there. And the secretaries always chose the collaborative option. And then finally, so they, they couldn't explain that. So Nash finally said, oh, well, that's because they're women. Years later, he totally disagreed with the prisoner's dilemma experiments. They, they were asking him, well, but you, you believed them at the time. And he said, yeah, I was a paranoid schizophrenic. Of course, I was going to believe in, you know, the people's worst nature. But yeah, people time and time again, they always defy those zero sum, the zero sum logic, and they always do the thing that's best for everybody. So why do we build a society around the presumption of so-called, you know, Thatcher, Hayekian, enlightened self-interest when it's not how human beings behave? If we do it enough, I bet we could flip it. So then what is civilization? You know, civilization then, as, as we define it now, is the retraining of the human psyche to no longer default to the philanthropic or generous action, but to default to the selfish, cortisol-driven, uh, fear-based one. And if you do it enough, you raise people with enough of that media and technology around them with, with that underlying presumption in every algorithm we face, yeah. Will humanity will go in that direction. We can be taught, you know, it's back to that, that song from South Pacific, you know, you've got to be carefully taught. He was arguing in, in there that prejudice is not a natural state, that prejudice has to be ingrained into you. The parallels between Nash citing his belief in the prisoner's dilemma to his paranoid schizophrenia and some of the conspiracy theories and cortisol driven paranoia that exists now, especially on social media. How do we get past that? As far as I'm concerned, it's just learning rapport, make eye contact with people, sit with people in real life, breathe together, conspire. Literally, conspire means to breathe together, conspire. If you breathe together with other people, the painstakingly evolved mechanisms for social cohesion and empathy are activated. 
you know, if you can't breathe together, if you're engaging with other people through these devices the way we do, not just during pandemics, you don't establish rapport. These devices are utilitarian. These are part of capitalism. These are devices that teach us how to extract value from other people and to see other people in terms of their utility value rather than their intrinsic value as living living beings. So yeah, spend time in real places with other people having fun is the surest path. I learned recently the etymology of the word intelligence apparently means to gather between, maybe not between people, but certainly between ideas or little chunks of knowledge. I thought that was nice. But yeah, to, to conspire, I didn't know the etymology of that word until I read your book. But what's the one question that I haven't asked you that I should have asked you to end this discussion? Interesting. I mean, I'm, I guess I'm wondering what happens after America? America has been kind of the most powerful and influential country for most of my life. I was having a similar conversation with a British friend recently who just said he feels a lot of shame in relation to his Britishness. And he realized as long as he doesn't identify with being British, he doesn't feel the shame anymore. So it's like what happens after nations? The world will be okay if America can go down without using its nukes. That that's the biggest danger to the world now, I think, is a collapsing America with a dictatorial leader nuking China or something as a way of distracting people from what's happening here. You know, so, so America is declining. China is ascendant with an alternative system of an alternative system of oppression. You know, and America just be kind of off the table except as a, an obstacle for, you know, a century maybe or half a century. What happens? Does Europe coalesce? into something, you know, without England, I guess, but does it coalesce into something? Does China become the main player? You know, where, where are the axes? So I am interested in, you know, what my friend Mark Stallman's been calling the three-body problem of the West, China, and digital, and seeing how these three spheres of influence are going to interact. The question I would ask, or I'd ask myself is, how do we envision a post-American global order? And then knowing that, how do we as Americans move forward? What, what do we do? And in some ways, some of what Trump is doing is toward that end, both in a positive and negative way. So what is it when we become just our country again, when we stop doing everything everywhere else, when we, when we accept the end of our empire, and relocalize. What does that look like? Can it look positive rather than Nazi? The three-body problem, of course, comes from physics, and famously, it never settles down. You know, in, with is with that the thing? It never settles settle. down. It it's inherently unstable, kind of chaotic pattern, and, right. and that's why this community of eighty people that I mentioned to you at the beginning is called liminal, because the sense is that there's just this fluidity that's going to be around for a while. That's what people don't get too. Is there's more liminal than not liminal. I think of it like the ticks of a clock and people think the seconds are the ticks, but no, the seconds are all that space between the ticks. The liminal is the majority of what's happening. It's not like this weird little place between, it's the everything. And then there are these fake markers we use to pretend it's not all liminal. 
Thank you, Douglas. I was really drawn to what he said about the need to find other people who are not like us and to conspire with them or breathe together. I also like what he said about the fact that we're on the edge of an emergence of alternative mechanisms for sustainability and the move towards a new model where value creation is much more localized. If you want to find out more about Douglas and some of the things we talked about, then please visit rushkoff.com. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community that addresses complex and collaborative challenges of our increasingly connected world. To find out more or to join the community, please visit weareliminal.co. Before we go, please can I ask that you share this podcast with others who you think might like it as well. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, keep on finding the others and connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye.